Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, a man that will not be watching the World Series due to a make-em-up show about zombies. He is the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Rest in peace, my friend Glenn. You do know he's not real, Well, right? it seemed real to me, okay? Tonight, tonight we are drinking Des Moines IPA by Confluence Brewing Company in Des Moines, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Garage grade, three and three quarters out of five bottle caps. Des Moines IPA is brought to us by some of our favorite garage friends. A big shout out to Ava in Orange, Virginia. Also, we have Carmen in Fallbrook, California. Next, we have Fanny all the way in Sweden. Back to the States, we have Kayla in Phoenix, Arizona. Not to forget Tara in San Fran, California. And last but not least, we have Nurse Ashley in West Williamstown, New Jersey. Well, way to knock that one out of the park. We like your gym. And a big shout out to Tim and Dave, two guys that did not agree with me on the last episode, but they post some really fascinating and some interesting stuff onto our blog. So if you want to go do that, want to post anything on the blog, go to truecrimegarage.com. Tim and Dave secretly hate you. I don't, I don't think it's secret anymore. But, you know, they, they put some interesting uh, information on the cases on the blog. So you, check that out. You know what, Tim and Dave? Go to truecrimegarage.com. Go to the store page and get your new True Crime Garage t-shirt so you can walk around and make fun of the captain wearing your True Crime <laughs> Garage t-shirt. And if you want to follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff, it's at True Crime Garage. And while we're on the topic of social media, you know, we get a lot of email. We try to get to them. But the best way to get a case suggestion heard is to go to iTunes. We need people to leave us five-star reviews. Leave us a good review and put your case suggestion there, and we'll be happy to check it out. And this case this week is a listener suggestion. This was suggested by multiple people. 
So thank you for that. Like your chief. All right, Captain, that's enough of the business. Everybody gather around, grab a chair because the garage door is closing. Get your beer. Let's talk some true crime. This is True Crime Garage, and this is the case of Johnny Gosh. My son was uh, delivering his Sunday morning newspapers. And a man approached him, asking directions. There were witnesses that saw the man, heard the man, saw the car, the license plate number, all of it. And Johnny was afraid. He told the other kids, there's something wrong with this guy. Wrong with this guy. And so he left the area and started walking towards where he would be doing his route. At that point, a second man came out from between a big clump of trees and two houses. Followed my son down the street followed my son down the street and around the corner. At which time that car had left the area, went around the whole block, came back up right where Johnny turned. Well, the second man following him stayed back a ways, so Johnny probably didn't even know he was being followed. Probably didn't even know he was being followed. And then shortly thereafter, somebody jumped out of the back seat. Johnny was shot with something. We don't know if it was a type of stun gun, a taser. We don't know what it was, but he was shot with something and dropped to the ground. And the reason we know this is there was a young man in his bedroom that was right there on the street, that corner. He heard some noise outside and he looked out. He saw all this happen. And then somebody from the back seat that had jumped out grabbed Johnny's feet. The man that had been following on foot grabbed him under his arms. They threw him in the back seat of the car. Then they ran the stop sign heading left towards the interstate, but they went only a few blocks where they pulled in and there was a van waiting with the motor running and they transferred Johnny's body to the van and then all the cars left the city. Tonight in the garage, we are talking about the child abduction of young Johnny Gosh way back from 1982. This is one of the most famous child abduction cases of all time. This took place in Iowa. You know, it's right up there with uh, some other very famous ones, Elizabeth Smart, Beverly Potts, Stephen Stainer, Adam Walsh, you know, ones that we hear about from time to time in the news that keep get cycling back to us. Yeah, um, I've never actually heard of this case until... Um, 
friend of mine and several listeners were suggesting through Netflix, there was a documentary called uh, Who Took Johnny? Mm-hmm. And uh, with the, um, you know, around the same time, the Amanda Knox documentary was kind of blowing up and everybody was checking that out. So I kind of went for that one first and then stumbled upon this uh, Who Took Johnny? Johnny Gosh was born November 12, 1969. His parents' names were John Sr. and Noreen Gosh. This was Noreen's second marriage. Her first marriage, she was married when she was pretty young. She had two kids with her first husband and a girl and a boy. And unfortunately, Noreen's husband was diagnosed with an uncurable cancer and he passed away. A few years later, Noreen meets John Gosh and they get married. And after a couple of years, they have a baby boy. And this is little Johnny Gosh. Johnny grew up in a very nice neighborhood in West Des Moines, Iowa. This was normal good people living normal good lives in middle America. It's a a tale almost as old as time, right? Johnny was a working man. He had a paper route in his neighborhood delivering the newspaper. Johnny was a paper boy for the Des Moines Register and Tribune. He had his route for about a year or so, and in this time he was able to enjoy some of the fruits of his labor as he saved up his money and purchased a dirt bike. This originally was the whole reason for starting up the newspaper route, uh, and he got his dirt bike. And well, there's not too many jobs that you can get before you know 16 to you know 16 to 18. So this is definitely something that, especially back in the 80s and 90s, even they had paper boys. Uh, so a job that I did myself. It was a great way to uh, get some cash. You know, so you can buy some things. And the only problem with it is that most of the paper routes you had to do every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Monday through Sunday. And Sunday being the big day, you know, that's when, you know, I had a paper route as well. And it seemed like, you know, Monday and Tuesday, you could burn through your paper route real quick. You could do it in about 10, 15 minutes if you were on bike. Uh, But the route I had, it seemed like every single door uh, received the Sunday paper. Uh, where not as many people received it during the week. And I know that uh, we have some younger listeners going, you know, well, nobody buys a newspaper. Well, back then, uh, most people did, and most people had it delivered to their house, especially on the weekend. Yeah, and you you probably were doing your paper route in the 90s like me, and this is, you know, uh, a decade before that Johnny's doing the paper route. So there's probably even a bigger load as far as the Sunday papers go. And somehow Johnny was able to save up enough money from his paper route for a dirt bike. It would have taken, I don't know what kind of paper route he had, but my paper route, I would have had to done it for 30 years to purchase a dirt bike. Yeah. (laughs) But he had his for about a year. He had purchased the dirt bike and this is something that he enjoyed riding and he would go riding with his older half brother. They'd go out in the fields and go riding. Um, But this leads us up to our story here. Because on September 5th, 1982, this is a Sunday at 5.30 a.m., Joe Gosh, that's the older half-brother that we spoke about, was leaving his home. He was heading to his job at the Village Inn. This was located in West Des Moines. Mm -hmm. Before leaving, Joe knocked on Johnny's bedroom door and asked if he was getting up to start his route. Johnny replied, yes. Joe, knowing his little brother was up, He decided it was time for him to leave his house. He left on his motorcycle and he went off to work. Johnny left the house to deliver papers with his dog, Gretchen. This is like a little Deshaun wiener dog type type of dog. You know, those little great dogs. 
not really great for scaring anybody off, but uh, great company, you know, to walk with you on your paper route. And since it was Sunday route, um, now what Noreen claims is that the husband helped Johnny out every day for the 13 months that he had a paper route. Now, what I'm wondering is one, did he only help him help him out on the Sundays? So would it be that he helped him out every Sunday? Uh, you know, because my parents would help me out sometimes on Sundays, most of the time during the week, since it is a lighter load, you would do it by yourself. Yeah, you're exactly right. On the Sundays, you would have to make different preparations for your Sundays because like we said, everybody seems to get the paper on Sundays and the paper is about four times the size of, of a weekday paper. So you have quite a cumbersome load to to figure out. Now, uh, I, I'm a little confused by that too, Captain, because I've seen a few interviews with Noreen where she says that, you know, every day John senior went with Johnny and, mm-hmm. and helped him deliver the paper. But then I've seen other interviews where he, she says, you know, on the weekends, John would go with, with Johnny. Um, well, so, the way it worked in, in my household was that they would help maybe on the weekend. Cause even Saturdays were a little bit more. Um, but back then it was probably just the same route Monday through Saturday. And then on Sunday, bigger when, with people just getting the Sunday paper, but to break down how this works, you know, you have to wake up early. This truck comes and delivers your papers into a bundle. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to have to take the papers out of this bundle, either either put a rubber band around them or put them in a bag. And so uh, when we start talking about the story, you're going to hear about how he had to go collect the bundle. And that's kind of how he starts his route. Look, maybe he, maybe Johnny was just thinking, you know, my dad's helping me out. I'm, you know, 13 years old now. I can... I can do this route by myself and just decided not to wake him. Or maybe he called to him and he just didn't wake up and thought, now I'll just do it myself. Well, the confusing thing here too is back then, um, some newspapers delivered in the evening. Um, You know, it was very typical to have an evening newspaper back in the early 80s. So I don't know if during the week, if it was an evening only paper, and then on the weekend there was a morning edition uh, it sounds to me like there was, you know, obviously a morning edition on this Sunday. So maybe John Sr. only woke up to help with the early morning uh, papers, you know, because in the evening time you'd be delivering when it's still light out. But I think you're right, Captain. I think it's a situation where uh, little Johnny decided that, you know, I'm 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 a man now. I've got a dirt bike. You know, I've got I've had this job for over a year. I don't need my dad to come and help me with my paper out. I know what I'm doing. I got my little dog Gretchen and, and on Sundays, at least he took a a red wagon with him. This is probably to carry all the help, carry all the newspapers behind him. Um, and so he, he gets his dog, he's got his red wagon that he would take with him. And, uh, he used the wagon, as we said, to load up the papers and pull Mm -hmm. them beside him. And Gretchen would go with him house to house and they would do the paper route. Well, for whatever reason, he did not wake up his father this morning. This day, Johnny went out alone. So Johnny left the house around 5.45 a.m. And we know this because his neighbor reported having heard Johnny pulling the wagon through his yard. This was a typical shortcut that Johnny would take regularly. He knew instead of, you know, instead of walking all the way up to the corner, you know, mm-hmm. going on the sidewalk and then just to make a left, you could just cut diagonally through this guy's yard and, and shorten your trip a little bit. And this was a man named Lawrence Hedlund who lived at 
101 45th Street. He reported to police that he heard Johnny cutting through the yard around 5.50 a.m. Mm-hmm. This shortcut would get Johnny to Ashworth Road, where he would then go to the corner of Ashworth and 42nd Street. This is where he would collect his papers. So apparently the big truck, as you said, would come by and drop several large stacks of newspapers. And then the carriers uh, would all kind of meet at this corner, you know, whether it be by plan or or by similar time, because, you know, the the guy, the truck usually drops the papers about the same time every day. And you would meet there and you would do just what the captain described. You would you would bag them up or you would put them in a, you know, wrap them with a rubber band and then you would start your route. And some people do this as they go. So you could just toss it into your wagon and as you go, you roll them. But the nice thing is that they're dropping off all the packages of the papers uh, and and one group. So then you're going to have paper boys that see each other mm-hmm. and they, they can be uh, account for each other as well. And that brings us to our first eyewitness. We have Mike. This is another paper boy. He can see Johnny walking and pulling his wagon. Johnny is traveling east on Ashworth, walking toward Mike. Mike is at the corner of Ashworth and 42nd Street. Remember, this is where the truck drops the newspapers for the carriers to collect. Mm -hmm. Mike sees a car traveling west on Ashworth, opposite direction as Johnny. Uh, The car stops and backs up to where Johnny is is and mike observes johnny talking to the driver after they are done talking johnny continues east and then the car makes a u-turn and turns around on ashworth now heading east toward the paper drop location the car stops where the boys are collecting their newspapers and the driver he he's asking for directions there is an adult near the corner uh, yeah but this is what's weird anyways because you you just stopped and asked Johnny. So what did Johnny say? We don't know, but we're assuming we can assume that Johnny didn't give him directions or didn't know the answer to this question. Therefore, that's the why the guy is doing a U-turn. And now he's now in a group of uh, boys collective. Mm-hmm. And there is an adult there. His name is John Rossi. Uh, Johnny asked Mr. Rossi to help the man. And then the man gets in his car and he takes off. It's at this time that eyewitnesses are going to get their vehicle description. And they describe the car as a two-tone blue, two-door Ford Fairmont. Johnny is now walking down 42nd Street. This is when Mike sees a man. It's been reported that he said a tall man or a large man step out from between some houses Mm -hmm. and start walking in the same direction as Johnny. But this man's walking, you know, a ways behind Johnny, almost like he's following him. Yeah, like he's the trailer. Mm-hmm. So this tall or large man, he's actually on the opposite side of the street as Johnny, but he's going to cross over the street and end up on the same side and now following Johnny. Uh, Johnny then passes two other carriers. They are on the opposite side of the street, traveling in the other direction. The boys exchange hello hellos, but these two boys... For whatever reason, they do not seem to notice the tall or large man on foot following Johnny. Mm-mm. Johnny turns down Marcourt Street. Uh, this is where P.J. Smith is in bed. Uh, his house is across the street on Marcourt from where he believe, where everyone believes that Johnny would have last been standing or walking last. Mm-hmm. P.J. Smith, he hears the sound of a car door closing or slamming. Uh, this causes him to 
you know, to lay up in bed and, and, and he sees, uh, what he describes as a silver and black Ford Fairmont vehicle. And this is probably right around uh, sunrise, I would believe. So now this car races off, uh, ignoring a stop sign and it turns left and Mr. Smith can see the unattended wagon, Johnny Gosh's wagon sitting by the sidewalk. Not too long after after that, two carriers walk by and they see the wagon as well, but they do not see Johnny Gosh anywhere. Right. And then the wagon, there's still his dog, Gretchen, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, now that is an account. There are several different accounts of, of what occurred that morning that led up to the disappearance of Johnny. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have multiple eyewitnesses, one an adult, a few uh, of these young boys that are that are out doing their newspaper routes. Um and they've told these stories to the police, and that's collectively the best scenario, the best uh, eyewitness accounts that we could piece together that would sound or form more like a police report. Now, I do think in all fairness that we should also report Noreen Gosh's version of this same story. Now, I do want to point out that there are some a lot of similarities, but there are also some slight differences. Um, now, one thing that we've been privy to, and you can find this on the internet, um, there are many, many interviews out there with Noreen Gosh, and she is happy to tell Johnny's story over and over again. And that's why we get these different versions of what took place that morning. Yeah, well, the question then becomes, is it, is it a new version? Because a lot of the versions that she is giving, she's given versions based off of eyewitness testimony. Right. Or or people coming towards her and saying, hey, this is what I saw that day. And so, yeah. okay, her story in 1982 is going to be different in 1985. Her -hmm. story in 1987 is going to be different if more people keep remembering stuff. And then obviously just the way she ends up telling it. Sometimes you'd leave something out, you know, uh, if you're doing so many interviews. I mean, the one thing you can say is that this altered this lady's life and she really worked really hard to try to get justice or some closures or, or anything for her son. So that's, she, she did her job as far as doing a ton of interviews. The problem with that though, is there becomes these gray areas. I guess that would be the best way to say it. Yeah, you're very right. Johnny's mother, Noreen would be Johnny's loudest in, in an unwavering voice. Uh, she would be willing to keep his case alive forever and for at least as long as she's on this planet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Noreen has a very similar, yet a little bit different version of the abduction, and I've tried to piece it together best as I could, given her interviews over the years. All right, so let's get to that right after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. 
With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. 
I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Welcome back, Captain. Welcome. Cheers. Yeah. So we are going to go through Noreen's version. And as the captain had said that she has given many interviews throughout the year. So this might not be altering versions. It may just be updated versions. Uh, but Noreen's version is pretty much the same leading up to the point of where the boys gathered at the papers. And I'll recap that real quick. This is Johnny wakes up and he leaves the house without his father takes his little dog in his wagon. He makes the shortcut through the neighbor's yard. And we know this from his older half brother. Mm -hmm. And when he, when he's making his way to the point where he's going to collect his newspapers, a car stops, a vehicle stops, and the driver is seen talking to Johnny. Now, Johnny continues on after talking to the driver, meets up with the other carry carriers, and he's collecting his papers. And this is where the story gets a little different. And Noreen's version, the, the man then pulls up to the corner where the boys are collecting their newspapers. And the man shuts off the car's engine. He opens up the passenger door and he gets out. And with slurred speech, he is asking about. Well, he doesn't actually get out. He just puts his feet down on the pavement. So he's not fully standing up. He's just kind of got the legs out of the vehicle. Right. And with slurred speech, he is asking about directions to 86th Street. Uh, this is when Johnny turns to Mike and says, I've got my papers loaded in the wagon. I'm scared. I'm getting out of here. I'm going home. Yeah. There's something creepy. He had this, uh, you know, feeling inside. I think about this guy that there was uh, some evil doing going on. Now, before I get some hate mail saying, no, Noreen said that, uh, Johnny said this, uh, if you go back and you watch multiple interviews, What she says that Johnny says changes a little bit every time. The reason why I believe that that's the situation here, Captain, Mm -hmm. she's hearing this second hand from people that not, they're not adults. These are, these are young boys that Mm -hmm. are out very early in the morning doing their newspaper, right? And they also don't know that something important is going to happen that day. They think that this is just a regular day, right? You don't remember Mm -hmm. everything that somebody says verbatim Mm -hmm. unless you think it's something important. And so Johnny basically says something to the effect of this guy's kind of creepy. Right. And I'm, I'm going to go about my business or I'm going home. Yeah. He might've said like captain creepy pants. I mean, who knows? Regardless, this is where Johnny continues down. He's collected his papers. Now he's going to continue towards his paper route. Yeah. Because he has a job to do. I mean, you have kind of a deadline. People expect their papers at a certain time. Yeah, and once uh, Johnny starts to head down the street, the other boys, they start to, some of them start to leave as well. This is when Mike, he's one of the other paper boys, mm-hmm. he sees the man uh, getting back into his car or, or pulling his legs into the car and getting back into the driver's seat. Uh, he turns on the engine and 
he clicks the dome light three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike looks down the street to see Johnny heading down the street, walking away from Mike, and Mike sees a tall man. He says about six foot three. Yeah, uh, come out from some bushes and begin walking down the street after Johnny. Now let's let's dive into this just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I've I've often wondered about this, and it's been discussed by many many people. If there were two people involved or if there weren't two people there, right. if, if it was only the driver in his car or if there was a man on foot and, and, and if the man on foot had anything to do with Johnny's disappearance at all, Noreen suspects that the clicking of the dome light was some kind of signal to signal this man to come out or start walking after Johnny. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a reasonable uh, assumption. I think it's a reasonable assumption and, and I can go along with that, but I'm going to throw it on the 50, 50 table because here, here's one thing that I kept thinking about when, when reading this account over and over again. Mm-hmm. Now, remember in those old cars, my, my first car was a 1986 Buick. Uh-huh. So probably uh-huh. not too much newer. White. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably not too much newer than, a, than the vehicle that this person was driving. He was driving a late seventies, early eighties vehicle. Uh-huh. Now, one thing in the dome light, you know how like the dome light has three modes. It's either off, on, or it's on when the car door is open. Yeah. And you know how like when you're in in the car and if it's dark, you never really know if forward is turning it from car door to on or to, to off. Right. So if you were trying to just simply turn off the dome light so it wouldn't turn on when your car door opens, sometimes you would, you would you would flick it on and then you would flick it back to car mode and then you would flick it off. Mm -hmm. And sometimes with these old vehicles, it would cause the light to go on, off, on, and then off. Well, yeah, I'm picking up what you're putting down. You see what I'm saying there? I, part of me wondered if this guy is alone and if he's not actually signaling another villain that, that he's simply just trying to turn off his car dome light because he's going to go do something bad and he might not want his face seen or, or less chance of there being light on him at this point. And maybe it was just him figuring out how to turn the dome light off and it, it wasn't signaling anybody at all. Well, we know that we know that uh, Johnny saw him. We know that Mike saw him. And then we also know that the adult saw him. Mm-hmm. Um, John Rossi, I believe is his name. Again, now why is this adult out there? The adult, the adult is out there because he's helping his kid with his route. So the adult is out there to pick up the papers. Sometimes you'd have this happen. I had a, my best friend had a paper route. I did my paper route probably eighty percent of the time without my parents' help. My friend, on the other hand, his parents would collect the papers, help roll them, and then wake him up. So he's kind of lucky in that fashion. He's one of those privileged kids with the paper. Yeah, he's privileged. But <laughs> uh, but um, but this adult's account is, in my eyes, makes a lot of sense because this adult is a lawyer himself. Yeah, and he gives a little. He puts in his two cents about the uh, the man that he saw in the car. You know, the 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 boy Mike and some of the other kids had said referenced slurred speech. Right. Uh, so your immediate thought is, well, was this guy? drunk you know was he hammered is he intoxicated yeah and uh mike rossi the adult he believed he didn't believe that the guy was intoxicated he actually states that uh the guy seemed pretty alert almost hyperactive mm-hmm. and kind of like ready to ready to go um it didn't seem sleepy at all but again we have an adult waking up early probably waking up early a bunch of times 
and then you got a bunch of early teenager kids waking up this is a lot harder for them to wake up and get their brains processing. Now, one thing that he did throw in about the description of the guy, Mike Rossi, he says that the guy, John did, Rossi, right? Oh, sorry. John oh. Rossi. I'm confusing the boy with, yeah, the, yeah. with the adult. Thank you. Uh, but John Rossi says that the suspect or the person that stopped to ask for directions, mm-hmm. he also didn't appear like he had just rolled out of bed, which, which John Rossi thought was, weird at the time yeah. uh, because most adults you, you get up it's very early it's five five forty five six o'clock in the morning even though that it's a weekend you know you're gonna look you may look like you just rolled out of bed this mm. guy seemed like he had either been up all night or yeah, he'd I mean, been up for I, some time heck i look like i just rolled out of bed at nine o'clock at night that's know? 24 7 so 24 7 that's <laughs> <laughs> anyways yeah so then what happens next okay so now johnny is he's walking down the street and this is at the point where the the tall man who uh, is said to be about six foot three comes walking out from the bushes and he's walking from he's walking behind Johnny. Now, right. I've al- also often wondered about the six foot three reference mm-hmm. is your only frame of reference for putting a, a height on this guy. Is it is it in reference to how tall Johnny is? Because right. Johnny was a tall kid. I mean, in my opinion, he was. He was only 12, 12 years old, and yet he's five foot seven at the time. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think that a vehicle, uh, somebody driving that did not know Johnny, mm-hmm. that saw him on the side of the road, especially when it's dark, just at off a reference by height, I would actually think that Johnny would be older. Personally, that's what I would think that maybe yeah. that this guy's mm-hmm. actually about instead of twelve or thirteen, that he's more likely to be about fifteen. Right. Um, so I don't know if they came up with the height of six foot three as a reference to how much taller he would have been than Johnny. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's six foot three. So that's that's roughly what we got eight inches there. So it, are they saying uh, he's about a half a foot to a foot taller than Johnny? Um, anyway, that's the height that they come up with. Now, at some point, this is where Johnny he's walking down the street and he goes down another street. He makes, and this is out of Mike's sight. Uh, this is where Johnny goes to Marcourt Street, and Mike hears a car door slam. Uh-huh. He hears the car door slam shut, and then the same vehicle that the boys had seen earlier. Yeah, the blue, the blue two tone blue Ford two door. Yeah. Yep, Mike sees that car speed off, turning left and heading toward the interstate. And now this all roughly takes place in about a. They say 12-minute time period. Let's say 10 to 15 minutes. And my first-hand account of being a paper boy, I mean, not only was I a paper boy, but I was an honorary paper boy. I had a special bag and everything. He had but, a special helmet that he wore. <laughs> yeah, that was to school. Um, but the thing is, is it was odd if you'd see, I mean, you'd see the, the big truck come out, drop off the papers as a carrier for the Columbus Dispatch, and that's pretty much it. And now I, I, I was by major roads, but you normally like on the courts that I was delivering papers on, you normally would never see a car. Yeah, you know, some mornings you would see nothing at all. You wouldn't even see a, a a light turn on in a house sometimes. Yeah, I mean it was is kind of strange. So the fact I you know I believe that this was, this was probably one of the only cars in the vicinity. So I do believe this is the suspect that we're looking at. Um, there are some other things about Noreen's story, right? Mm-hmm. So there, uh, she would later make reference to uh, the fact that she believes 
that Johnny was shot or struck by something mm-hmm. uh, that that uh, eyewitness had seen Johnny on the ground and then he's picked up by two men and and placed in the back of of a vehicle right the blue uh, vehicle we could assume and the vehicle drives off now keep in mind and now this is this account is coming from an individual that kind of wakes up when they hear a scuffle and kind of looks out the window. We have a strange situation here, and I think that the the one eyewitness that we discussed earlier, Mr. Uh, P.J. Smith, that I think he just, because of the lighting at the time and because he's looking out a window, he describes the vehicle that he sees as two-tone, but it's a, it's a um, well, not two-tone, it's a silver and black car. Right. Where a light blue and dark blue car may appear to be silver and black if it's not under a, a, a street light. Uh, or if it's sitting in the dark, uh-huh. um, and, and like I said, this the the sunrise has probably not happened yet. There's probably not a bunch of sun at this point. And keep in mind, the boys are saying we saw the exact same car of the guy that was talking to us. We saw that exact same car speed off and yeah. make a left and head mm-hmm. towards the interstate. Now, now yeah, go and ahead. then the other the other statement that she makes, and and I don't know where she's getting this information from. Is that then this car speeds off and then meets up with a van, a white van, and then they basically take Johnny out of the car and put him into the white van, like a cargo van. Again, there's a reason why we call these creeper vans. Yeah. You know, it's like time and time again, oh, well, was he driving a creeper van? But let's keep in mind here. This is what I I try to keep in mind, that Mm -hmm. all of the eyewitnesses from the statements recorded way back in September of 1982, none of them mentioned seeing Johnny on the ground. None of them mentioned seeing two men throwing his body yeah. into a vehicle. And again, none of them mentioned seeing a white van or a van of any sort. And what we're talking about when he first arrived in the garage was, I, we were talking about the trailer, and I was telling you, well, first of all, you you knocked on me because it was a little too uh, uh, stranger things. But uh, I meant that as a compliment. Oh, I thought it was a knock on me. Uh, I was wearing my special helmet. So, <laughs> uh, but what happened with the first trailer? I, I wish I took an original interview from like the mid '80s. It was done on like one of those old giant home recorder things. But the audio was so bad, I just couldn't use it. Mm-hmm. And so then I found a new test. You know, basically telling the same story of how he got abducted. And it was it was off, and one of the things that was way different was that he was tased or shot by something. Mm-hmm. And again, I I don't know how common tasers were at that time. I'm assuming not that popular, not as popular as they are today, obviously. But the the second account and the account that you will hear in the trailer, that's from 2016. You know, and that's, you know, I can't find a lot of accounts where they talk about this uh, being shocked or even put into this cargo van, the creeper van. Part of me wonders if that's a theory, Um, you know, and sometimes these theories manifest into something that that you just start to believe yourself at some point. But I do believe that Johnny might have been difficult to get into a vehicle. He was five foot seven. He was an active young boy. and, Uh uh, And the other thing, too, is. If his words were exactly any form of 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 the conversations that we have heard uh, back at the paper at the paper pickup, 
Right. He already had a heightened sense of awareness at mm-hmm. this time. He's already he, he's on his game because he's already he's either frightened or he's been or he said this guy's a weirdo, you know. Mm-hmm. And usually I tell you what, man, at that time of day, at six in the morning, it's still it's still dark out. You encounter it's, a weirdo, you're you're on your game. You're you're Yeah, I mean it's creepy, man. It's you know, last night I was uh, you know, talking to my friend pretty late and I saw a jogger. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it kind of freaked me out a little bit. It's because you don't expect to see yeah, anything or, like, oh, or anybody. Why and, are you jogging? Yeah. Yeah. Did did you carry any kind of protection with you on your paper route? I mean, I had my helmet. Yeah. Your special helmet. <laughs> and you just, just take the brunt of the yeah, force just, being. No, it varied. I mean, sometimes I'd walk on the route. and, and, and But most of the time I was using like my BMX, you know, my mm-hmm. I had a mongoose expert. You, you had a badass bike well i, I was saved, very jealous of that bike. i saved up from a paper route you know some people use their money wisely and i bought a mongoose expert and uh and i'd ride around and like it, it would freak you out sometimes the the thing that would scare me the most is when you go to toss the paper and the front door would open happen to open at the same time uh, god it, oh it's the most i mean you almost piss yourself right there on the spot I used to do like a little contest with myself. I would time myself and, and I would constantly try to beat like, uh, if it was Monday, I was trying to beat last Monday's time. You, you were like the CrossFit of the paper boys, you know, uh, but, time in your workout. But I had, I did have a little weapon because on, on rare occasion I would get the dog chasing my bike uh-huh. situation and, uh, I never had to use it. Thank God. Cause I don't know that I would be able to do it if I had to, but uh, I had one of those little souvenir baseball bats. You remember those things you get at the a yeah. baseball game? I had a Columbus little, Clippers ring your bell. Yeah, I, I think I had a either Clipper one or maybe um, Cincinnati yeah. Reds or something. But it's about a about a foot long, maybe fourteen inches. Maybe but it was the Indians. Go you, tribe. You could have cracked somebody in the head with that. Yeah, let's not talk about the baseball bats on people's heads because after oh, the that's Walking right, Dead, I mean, I'm just. Uh, I'm having nightmares, man. It was pure torture. Let's get back to the case. Yes. So what ends up happening now, Johnny's gone. Okay. And what happens on these paper routes back then? I don't know how they work today. Like today, if my newspaper doesn't show up, and yes, I do still get the newspaper on the weekends. Old school. Yeah. Uh, Well, I like like the way it feels in my hand. So that's what she said. When my newspaper doesn't show up, I just call the the dispatch's customer service and Mm -hmm. I wait 45 minutes before I get to speak to somebody. Well, because of all these situations, I mean, starting way back in, in 82 with Johnny Gosh, I mean, like we talked about one of the most famous abduction cases in history. Mm-hmm. It's a paper boy. Now, like I said, we were, you know, I was doing the, the papers in, in the, I don't know, mid nineties, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, but shortly after that, it, it became non-existence, and now they give the routes to adults, and they're all car routes, at least in in Columbus. Yeah. So, yeah. but but what I'm saying is, back then, you didn't call customer service no, to report no, no. your paper missing, and even when you and I did our paper routes, uh, yeah, most of the time, you. most of the time, they would just call your house or your parents and right, say. Right. Uh, guess what? Uh, the captain didn't show up with the paper today. Uh, <laughs> I didn't uh, see that kid with his funny helmet. He must be in the garage talking to himself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's recording. <laughs> so, but back then, so Johnny's parents start receiving phone calls that, mm-hmm. Hey, our newspaper has not shown up. And yeah, so John senior, mm-hmm. he just believes that Johnny's running late. Oh, Oh, my boy's out there for the first time on his own. He's probably running late. Yeah. Well, cause at this point, you know, big John, we'll call him big John. Um, 
he wakes up. He's getting calls. Hey, and they're probably not mean calls. I mean, this is 82. People were a little bit nicer back then. But it's like, hey, I haven't got my paper yet. Mm-hmm. And so he probably thought, oh, crap. You know, little Johnny went out by himself. So now I'm going to go look for him. So he goes out on his route. And now my route was basically a short court, uh, a little longer court, and then a very long court. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for my parents to come out and find me, it may be 10 minutes at most. So, yeah. So, so Johnny, Big John goes out to look out for little John, can't find him, rushes back home, and immediately he calls the police and but, he states, look, there's something must be wrong because, I, I, you know, one, people to get their papers, but I can't find him anywhere. I thought that he found the wagon, that he spotted the wagon with the newspapers in it, and that's when he knew that something was wrong, that that kind of tipped him off. Um, yeah, I don't have that in my notes, but that, I mean, that totally, and, I, and you know, I watched the documentary, which is an m- amazing documentary. I think if anybody gets a chance and if you want to dive into this uh a case more that's definitely i mean we're going to cover it more obviously but that's a good place to start um but yeah so but there the, the not only is the wagon there but the dog is there and the papers are there yeah yeah and and you're right he goes he goes home immediately he wakes up noreen or, or noreen's already up and he tells her call the police johnny's missing Mm-hmm. Uh, Noreen calls the police and she says by her account that it was approximately 45 minutes before the police arrive uh, to take a report. And back then, unfortunately, they had a 72 hour waiting period when a when a teenager would specifically a teenager would go missing. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would imagine hopefully they would have better procedure if it's a three year old or five year old. But. When, yeah, when but it, laws were different, and because of situations like these, laws have been changed or had to be changed. The other thing that uh, Noreen does, which is interesting, is she calls the district manager of the paper route because every like route, like uh, I, I had a guy that I had to uh, report to if something was, you know, if somebody, you know, if somebody called my house and they're missing the paper, uh, they could also call the dispatch to complain, but it would go to my district manager so she ends up calling the district manager explaining like look we can't find johnny she gets the numbers of the boys on the different paper routes um they get a good model of the car you know the uh, the man talking to the boys uh so she starts collecting and, and this is pretty quick afterwards i mean we're talking about within an hour or two let's say to be safe She's now collecting eyewitness accounts because she doesn't have anything to report to the police and she's getting these eyewitness accounts from the other paper boys. Right. And and like we said, it's about 45 minutes from the time that they call the police that they arrive. They take the report from the parents and at some point they are asked, well, has he ever run away before? Right. And, and they almost word it in a way that, that sounds like um, right. he's probably run away before and he's run away again this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and Noreen and, and John, big John say, you know, well, he's never run away at all, including right. this time. And, and in, in fairness to the cops though, this is something that you would think that you need to ask. Well, and this, this is one thing that we talked about when we covered the West Memphis three, you know, there were so many people in the uh, uh, Paradise Lost documentaries that got angry and upset with John Mark Byers 
because he seemed to throw out there that, oh, my son was on this this prescribed drug and he happened to not take it today. Right. And really what we pointed out there is what we're going to point out here. There are certain questions that the police are trained to ask given certain situations. And in a missing persons case or when a person is being reported as such, a police officer is he's he or she is trained to ask are are they on any medications right have they ever run away before right so what happens is sometimes this is very off-putting to the parents and what i think happened here is i think we've seen nori okay she's a take no prisoners kind of person i really i really as far as her being a crusader for johnny Uh i champion her and i and i like the cut of her jib. Yes. And I think what has happened here is I think when she was asked, has your son ever run away before? I think Noreen probably gave the officer the business and this really kind of ticked off the police department. Yeah, but, but she doesn't give like the crazy business. I mean, you, you hear her sometimes in interviews get a little animated, but in no way, shape or form is, is she like a, a disrespectful person? She seems very respectful from people and obviously she might be a little hysterical because her boy is gone but uh, she seems very respectful i just mean she's a person looking for help and i don't think she believed she was receiving it at that time no shit and and like you had said she goes into action mode on her own and big john goes into action mode on his own they they go into parental we are in charge we're going to find our child mode and the other thing here too is after the police take the report, they don't come back for several hours later right, uh, right. to talk with the the parents again. And this is when Noreen and Big John are collecting this information. They've even started organizing their own searches mm-hmm. by this time. Mm-hmm. Because basically now what's happening is they're they're talking to all these paper boys on their routes. They're talking to the customers of their their child that haven't received their paper. The whole community, in, in, in essence, is worried. you got the cops in there looking at you saying, hey, he probably just ran away, which makes zero sense. Okay. Zero sense. You're exactly yeah, because, right. Go ahead. Okay, because one, think about it this way. I mean, his little, I you know, maybe he wasn't in love with this little uh, red wagon he had, right? Mm-hmm. But he was using that as a tool. But it's just like my mongoose expert. There's no way in hell I'm leaving that bike behind. So, but here's what we got. We have a wagon. We got papers. This kid for 13 months was super responsible with his paper out. We don't have any uh, accounts that we know of, of neglect or lackadaisical attitude towards his business. Mm -hmm. And then we have his dog. That's the biggest part of this. You're exactly right. If you don't like your dog, you're not taking the dog on the paper route. You're not just doing that for the fun of it. You're doing it because you you know, you love your dog and you want to, Hey, I'll just take my dog with me. Right. He was a part of the paper. He or she Gretchen, she's a part of the paper route. Um, and I think you're exactly right. Captain. I think that I understand the 72 hour waiting period back then more kids ran away than, Mm -hmm. than currently whatever. But when you see, when you see the circumstance, when Mm -hmm. you see the empty, when you see the wagon sitting there full of papers, you see the dog left behind. That doesn't, that doesn't scream runaway. Well, we have two pieces of evidence. That really important. We have this mysterious man that we have multiple eyewitnesses accounts of seeing this mysterious man in this mis- not mysterious car, but it's a whatever. It's this car. We got the, you know, the eyewitness accounts of that, and then we have the scene where Johnny left all his stuff. 
by all those accounts, there's nothing to me that points in the direction of runaway. No, this, this screams, um, a, a potential dangerous abduction. That, that he probably went somewhere unwillingly mm-hmm. that and not only is this man seen and spotted twice he spotted twice both times speaking directly to Johnny yeah, gosh yeah, yeah. well and then he speeds away and just the creep factor I mean so it's, it's let's weird. let's go through the description of this uh, of this guy so uh, the from the eyewitness accounts this is what we were able to piece together the suspect is five foot nine approximately five foot nine 175 pounds. He had dark eyes, dark eyebrows, uh, appeared to be in his early to mid-40s, black hair, which was combed back. Uh, He had a black mustache. Mm -hmm. And it's also reported that he either had a heavy beard or unshaven (laughs) appearance. Uh, And he also may have appeared to be be Latin. Um, May have been driving a two-tone blue car, um, real dark top and light blue bottom, mid-size vehicle, Approximately 1979 to 1981 model, uh, clean inside and out, no vinyl top, plush interior. And here's one thing that's very helpful is the Iowa license plate. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's interesting about that Iowa plate is Noreen claims to have had a partial plate, you know, partial plate number. Right. Um, I would love to see that on a website somewhere, but uh, that's not been given in any of the the interviews or the documentaries that I know of. Do you want to talk about the search party? Yeah, so like we talked about before, I mean, um, Noreen is now calling in Big John and is talking to a lot of the, the neighborhood, and they basically get together about 20 people or over 20 people, mm-hmm. uh, anywhere from, let's say, 30 to 50 people, right? Let's just do a bigger range. 30 to 50 people show up at this park, and they're going to search they're starting a search party for Johnny. Well, the sheriff shows up, right? Yeah. And the sheriff shows up, and this guy is going to play a bigger factor in this story as we go. Yeah, we'll get into him more later, but but as far as this is concerned, this is Sheriff Police Chief Orville Clooney shows yeah. up to yep. the uh, Police Chief. Party. Sorry, I said uh, Sheriff. Uh, police Chief. Um, Captain uh, Police Chief Douche Schnozzle is what we'll call him. But basically shows up, stands up on a picnic table and says, hey, everybody go home. This kid is nothing but a damn runaway. Mm -hmm. Now, 23 people of this bigger group show up at the front lawn of the Gosh's house and and say, and they're standing outside and they said, uh, oh, you know, they're pissed off because they're like, wait a second. We thought you wanted our help. And they said, well, yeah, yeah, we did want you. We did want your help. What the hell is going on? Yeah. And they, they're like, well, you know, police uh, chief Captain Douche told us to go home. He's just a runaway. Another thing that uh, Noreen did that I thought was interesting because the FBI at this point, a lot of times now you'll see missing kid. The FBI shows up right away. Mm-hmm. So the, the FBI never showed up. So um, Noreen calls the FBI. Two agents came out to the home. Uh, they t- explained to her, hey, uh, we, we know the case. We know what's happening, but uh, we will not be entering the case. And that you need to prove to us that the child is in some sort of danger. The police chief doesn't want our help. So again, small community. Here's We have um, a police chief that 
is now assuming it's a runaway. All the evidence points to that doesn't make any goddamn sense. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and all, so not only do we, we're going to assume he's a runaway, but we don't want the help of the FBI. And there was a police officer that's on the documentary. Uh, and this is a retired officer. Obviously mm-hmm. he's an older gentleman and I should go ahead before I bash him too much. I should commend him for actually coming forward and talking about the case for what, what he could offer. Yeah. Um, because a lot of people it seems like that were involved in the police department at the time don't want to talk about this case. Uh, yeah, so, it seems like there was a lot of bad stuff going, you know, kind of a trickle down effect. And look, I mean, I'm not, you know, this police chief, um, might not be an awful person. He just might've made some mistakes. He probably is, but go ahead. But, but sometimes, you know, people get in a, in a, um, they get in a position of power and they try to control things and they try to do things their way. And that's not always in the up and up. And the more power they get, the more they take advantage of situations or maybe they even get lazy and they don't want to do their job. Well, the, the police officer that I'm talking about, the retired officer that was in the documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, this is as of like 2015, the documentary came out. I don't know when the interview was conducted, but I am assuming it would have been 2014 or early 2015. Well, they're, they're actually working on that documentary for like four or five years. So yeah. they were involved in this documentary for a long time. But, but regardless, this case is over 30 years old. So we're talking mm-hmm. at the time of this interview had to have been 25 years or later after the crime right and the police retired police officer says simply we didn't he's explaining why they didn't investigate right. and and his answer is we didn't have a crime scene mm-hmm. now I, I just have such a hard time with that because we the, the whole damn place is a crime scene you know the from from the mm-hmm. from the minute that Johnny is seen talking to that unknown person in the vehicle when he's off by himself right. to the point where he gets to pick up his newspapers to where they find his wagon full of newspapers. Mm-hmm. That's all a crime scene. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and it baffles me where they go, well, there's, there's no crime scene. Again, your wagon is left with your papers and your dog again. Now, if you take away that dog to me mm-hmm. and it's just the wagon with some papers, I might, I might start leaning more to your side of, oh, there's no crime scene. But, you know, what boy is going to leave their dog behind? I mean, give me a break. Okay, so that is the, the general story of the abduction. Uh, you know, eyewitness accounts, Noreen's accounts, Big John's accounts. Um, and then we have, you know, within the next few years, there are a few weird and strange happenings that occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, we'll get into those in more detail later because yeah, in the part two of it's a part this. of the grander scheme of things. Uh, but there's somebody that we do have to introduce uh, before the end of this episode, and that is a man by the name of Paul Benassi. Yeah. Now, this is a guy, a young man that comes forward. And when I say young man, he's actually a man when he comes forward. He's right. not... Uh, He's not Johnny's age uh, at the time of Johnny's disappearance. And what this year is, does he come forward? This is nine years after uh, Johnny is abducted. Okay. Um, Paul Benassi. So 91. Comes, yeah, he comes forward and he says that, um, well, I, you know, and this is how he's des- described. He's a, he's a guy that's sitting in jail, right? Uh-huh. And he's in jail for um, sex offender child molestation charges of his mm-hmm. own. Um, now, we should 
phrase that appropriately. He apparently he improperly touched his cousin and uh so there was something that was going on there but Benassi was 17 at the time that he was he was arrested for this. Uh so it does seem a little strange that he would still be in jail for it 9 years later. Right. Regardless, he gets in contact with his um uh, lawyer, with his attorney. And he's telling the attorney about um, some strange things of his childhood. Right. And he was involved in uh, in kind of the sex slave business, if you will. Right. Um, well, and this is at this time, uh, people, you know, and they talk about this in the documentary, too, is a lot of these investigators and stuff didn't even know what the word pedophile was. Mm-hmm. And he tells his attorney all these these stories about this child sex ring, and mm-hmm. he was at these these parties where people would have sex with children or children would do things with these adults, and some of these adults are are figureheads of the community. Yeah. Some of them are people of power, are politicians and mm-hmm. police chiefs. And um, now this is this is taking place in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, and remember Johnny Gosh was abducted in Des Moines. Iowa. Yeah. Uh, so this is across the the straight the state line there. Um, but the thing that further makes this these allegations even wilder, right? Is he says I was involved in the abduction of Johnny Gosh, and he yeah. says that which, like we said again, this is an extremely popular case in that area in the Midwest, and in our area, we're part of the Midwest. But the other thing that makes this really strange is he talks about, you know, he has a, like a personality disorder and maybe he has multiple personalities and he can almost summons these. And you can see it t- time and time again where he will lay his head on the table when he's talking and going over these events. And then he kind of summons, a, you know, an altered personality. Yeah. And I don't know if I believe any of that shit. But Well, let's get into that in a minute. Let's talk about the abduction again. Mm-hmm. So this is Paul Benassi's uh, involvement, according to Paul. He says that uh, he was used uh, to kind of lure uh, Johnny because at the time, Paul would have been only a few years older than Johnny. Yeah. And this might have made it easier to get him in the vehicle or to draw him close if you needed to do something to him. Yeah. Paul said that not only was his job to lure Johnny uh, near the vehicle or to talk to the other men involved, but at some point, his job was to hold down Johnny Gosh in the back seat of this vehicle yeah. and chloroform him. You know, that's where you take the, the 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 rag or whatever and you stuff it over the person's face and you hold it there until they until yeah, they fall the, asleep. Right. Um, well, the the fumes are what makes them pass out. Yeah, and he says that this was his job in the um, in the process. Now, this would go along somewhat with Noreen's version. Uh, that we would we, we would hear later of the vehicle of the car pulling up and to the creeper van to the creeper van and then then the body going from the car to the creeper van mm-hmm. and then we'd assume that it would be limp at that you know Johnny's body would be limp at that point because uh you know uh, of the the rag and 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 uh, you know the asphyxiation right mm-hmm. is that what happens well no because that that would mean he would be completely dead. Uh, yeah 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 um, so it, but but he's knocked him out but with the, this fumes, fumes. the fumes the fumes yeah yeah and, and mobilizes him so 
the story seems plausible, but it's also very crazy, right? And where? Well, what's his motive for talk, talking about this? I mean, I, you know, is because sometimes there's that you know you tell us some information and we'll let you go early, you know. But actually, this is implementing you in something way bigger than what you're in jail for in the beginning. Yeah, and I here's the problem: I can't really. I can't come up with a motive for why he would come forward with this because he does not get out of jail early mm-hmm. uh, for, for the crime he committed. Um, he does end up being involved in a lawsuit, in a civil lawsuit. Right. Uh, now, this is for his claims against the uh, Larry King, Lawrence E. King, uh, who was involved with the Franklin Credit Union. Yeah. Now, this is... This is a much bigger story than what we can fit into the end of this episode. But but the gist of it is that the, the Franklin Credit Union, right? they get raided because there's information that comes out that there's all kinds of illegal activity going on and around the Franklin Credit Union. Yeah, money laundering. And money stuff like laundering, that. embezzlement. There's missing funds. Well, and then also what happens with uh, credit unions or any banks is that normally the larger entities have auditors. Uh, one of my good friends, Jeff, uh, which just texted me two minutes ago, said he listens to the show now, which is pretty cool. But he travels the country auditing these different banks. So a lot of times in these audit situations, they start finding all these crazy discrepancies. Mm-hmm. So now they're figuring out, okay, well, we got all this money going to all these places. And based off of you know an investigation that's you know purely financial and are you and the up and up in the financial institute it uncovers this holy hell of you know to me it's just almost you know demonic almost you know as far as what was going on with these higher ups yeah so benassi and a few others claim that the franklin credit union and larry king specifically and now let's, let's call him lawrence lawrence king so we don't confuse him with the with the like, great yeah I the like great larry interviewer king. from cnn that everybody knows about it's not the same guy lawrence king yeah so this is lawrence king lawrence king very bad larry king from cnn very, very good. good yeah okay so lawrence king he is involved in using this organization that's called boys town and he's also using some other child organizations, but but basically, Boys Town is a place that uh, Boys would, Town. It sounds like a boy band. You would send it does. You would boys send town. young young men, young boys, right. to this place, and they would have activities for them to do and things like that. There's probably summer camps involved. This mm-hmm. could be for troubled youths. This yeah. could be for. Uh, Persons that uh, maybe they don't have the traditional family life at home. Mm, kind of like a big brother program or something. Exactly. And it sounds like uh, Lawrence King and some of the people involved in his ring, they were using this as a way to. Uh, don't even say it. We know what they were doing. They're a bunch of weirdos. Right. Right. So they're they're having these parties. Um, and they're taking these boys and these young uh, girls. And they're taking advantage of them. To, on trips and to places and giving them money. And, and in return, they're expecting the worst thing you can think of. Right. And, yeah, so, this, so we know that this kid is involved, or at least he's making claims that he was involved in this scandal, which uh, this scandal is pretty broken wide open. It's pretty factual that this scandal happened. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so it's not just claims. I mean, I think the way you made it sound was that there, these boys are just claiming that this happened. There's, there's tons of factual evidence that proves that this happened. So there is now some more weight to, um, Paul's, uh, Benassi's claims. Mm-hmm. And what, what takes place here too, is this is, this is when he comes out that I was involved with the Johnny Gosh abduction. Uh-huh. And he says that the reason for this is that this ring, uh, this child sex slave ring, they liked to, uh, abduct clean kids, um, that right. these weren't kids that were involved in the program and that Johnny was one of these kids. And that on occasions they would auction these, these youths off to these perverted people, whether it be people from the States or from overseas. Um, so basically what Paul's saying is that since he's been to these parties, since he's been taken advantage of before that, he's just not, you know, he's not worth much to, um, these individuals. And so some of the guys, the higher ups guys with a little more money, like we said, they put a price tag, I'll pay, you know, 10,000 bucks, 5,000 bucks, whatever the dollar amount is, is for a new kid, um, that's never been taken advantage of before. Now, Paul also claims that he can prove that, that he was with Johnny Gosh. Um, and he says this because he can, there's some identifiers on the young boy. Right. And one is a birthmark on Johnny's chest, in yeah. his chest area. Now this, we should point out though, you know, that some of the interviews and things that you hear will say that this definitively proves that Paul Benassi knew Johnny Gosh, that, that, that his story is true. But we should point out that that birthmark was, was heavily publicized. Mm-hmm. It was something that everybody that knew anything about the case knew of this, this, uh, birthmark. Yeah. And it's weird. I mean, let's just talk about this birthmark for, for example, because when we end up talking about the pictures that may or may not be Johnny Gosh, uh, they talk about, can you see this birthmark? It's kind of a dis- discoloration. Mm-hmm. It's not like this very noticeable. It's just kind of a different coloration. It's not uh, like a Gorbachev, uh, very right. Prominent. It's, yeah. It's red. more of just kind of a, maybe a little bit of a darker, um, tone in, in this one area around his shoulder, shoulder and chest area. He also says that there was a scar on Johnny's tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, and Noreen confirms that he would have had a scar on his tongue. Yeah. Cause um, he bit through his tongue when he was younger again. Now that one wasn't publicized for any knowledge that I have of that. Exactly. As well as a burn scar on Johnny's leg on one of his legs. And Noreen confirms that he would have had a burn scar as well. And again, this one is not publicized either. Right. Um, and the, the final thing that he says is that Johnny would stammer. His speech would stammer when uh, he was upset or scared. Um, he, he also describes, he, he talks about the abductor. Uh, he names him. He says his name was uh, Emilio. Yeah. Um, and he would go on to say that Johnny would have been, that Johnny was purchased by a guy that lived in Colorado. Right. Again, so what we have right now is we have Paul's claims. Uh, one, I think, backed up a little bit about the Lawrence King scandal. You know, there's some credibil- credibility there. Mm-hmm. Now we got these weird marks, the, the, the birthmark, which, again, maybe he knew about from the publicity. 
We have the birthmark. We got the, the scar on his tongue from cutting through his tongue when Johnny Gosh was younger. And then we got this burn mark on his leg. Now, um, Noreen is saying, okay, well, he, there's some things that he should not know about. And then he talks about this whole scenario. So we got two, right? Hmm. He's bad and, you know, pretty good right now. And he starts talking about this connection about he's bought and he's, and they're going to take him to Colorado. Now, again, they're kind of thinking, well, this guy is a little crazy. He's, he's summonsing other personalities during interviews. Yeah, you had said earlier personality uh, yeah, like disorder, a, but, yeah, it's like a, but but multiple personalities is what he was. Yeah. they thought he may have had. Yeah, and he would like summons them. It's really strange, and I don't know how much I buy that or how much attention he was looking for. Again, the the you know Paul did some bad things himself. You right. know, it, you know to family members, and there, there's other claims or whatever. And now you have this whole ring that he's possibly involved. Again, I think it's a situation where he was a victim and now they're making him victimize people. You know, this ring of people. So now he starts making these claims about somebody hiring, um, you know, they want hiring people to capture Johnny so that, so he, you know, uh, this, this gentleman will be able to be the first one to take advantage of Johnny. And he's making claims in Colorado. Well, when they go out, and have Paul show him where this place was. It's this ranch that was owned by like a prison guard or somebody. Correct. And this is where it gets really strange for me. He talks about behind the back, underneath like the porch or something, there's this opening. And he said, that's where we'd put the kids. Well, not only is there an opening that this guy talks about, this like secret doorway, there are these tunnels that are dug underneath this property. And then when you go into these tunnels and you look up into these floorboards, you know, underneath the, this building, yeah. there are child names. You can talk into the mic. That's what you gotta do. <laughs> I um, like talking to you. Yeah. yeah well, you got to talk in the mic so the beautiful people can hear your Hello, nasally drone. Yeah. So we're, but we're in the, the we're in the, Underneath the house, right? There's the these tunnels or holes dug out, mm-hmm. and they almost look like foxholes to me. You know, like what they they say in the in in war. You know, you're down yeah, this yeah, foxhole, yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. um, not and, a real fox, but a war fox. And this is where you would, I imagine, that if if you thought the authorities were coming, or if there was somebody coming to the house, that you would place a group of children under there so you could conceal them, and your secret wouldn't be out. Uh, but as you were saying that there's there's names or or initials, yeah, child uh, initial. Again, we don't know what it is. I mean, we, all we can go based off of is Paul's claims, and that's some crazy shit to just make up out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. I want to offer my opinion on his claims so badly, but I feel like we got so much more to get into before before we can do that. Okay, keep going. Well, we should also mention the in 1992, a show that we've talked about a lot on here mm-hmm. is the famous show America's Most Wanted, hosted by John Walsh. Now, John Walsh actually knew Noreen and John Gosh. Uh, right. They had met through the investigation of of finding Johnny, and they, along with other parents, were involved uh, in the founding of the. Uh, missing the the foundation for missing and exploited children, right? Uh, which we've 
the True Crime Garage has made our, made our little donation and will do so again in the future. But John Walsh features this case on his show. Now, by the time that he's able to feature it in 92, the reason why they wanted to, this is the anniversary of the 10 year anniversary of the abduction of Johnny Gosh. Right. And they're able to present Paul Benassi's story during the same episode because mm-hmm. he's already come forward at this time. Now, the strange thing here, I mean, as if Paul Benassi's story isn't couldn't get any stranger. He, he has all these strange claims and all these strange things that he's saying, but then he says... And his actions. I mean, the actions of summonsing, you know, I'm going to summons a different po- personality is, is kind of bizarre. Well, and the personalities, some of them, they have names and ages and, and things that they've experienced that other personalities have not experienced, which right. is wild. But anyway... Uh, he's talking about, and not that I don't believe that that is a real thing that people probably do suffer from. I'm not saying that I don't believe that that's real at all. I'm just saying it just kind of seems hokey and and the documentary and then, you know, diving into it more and seeing other interviews with Paul, it seems a little hokey when he's doing it. If you have multiple personalities, have each one of them go to iTunes and give us a (laughs) five-star review. Um, But Paul Benassi, he's telling his story, and he's saying that not only are there kids that are in this program, in this sex slave ring, uh, but some of them, they brand them. And there's a specific brand, and it looks like like a symbol, like an X with maybe, you know, some kind of you or anchor type shape underneath yeah, yeah. the X. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he describes this, but this, the thing that I can't get over here, captain is that after the, after the story comes out on America's most wanted, you, you know, you know, these kind of shows, they, they show you a phone number at the end. And if you have any information, you can call this number and you will be, you can be kept anonymous. And yeah, they're hoping to get information about the disappearance of Johnny gosh. Mm-hmm. What ends up happening is they get phone calls from kids and young adults that are saying yeah i was in that program yeah i I was the branding i was i was trapped uh these people did terrible things to me and i have the branding on my arm or leg right yeah yeah and and here's what's interesting to me so when we think about paul again not much motive there's nothing he's not going to get much out of just lying to the authorities about some uh random kid in a different town going missing has not much to gain mm-hmm. other than maybe some clarity and some some uh, weight lifted off of him. And maybe he wants to change around his life, right? So first of all, he talks about the abduction. He talks about these characteristics. That all seems legit. He talks about this stuff with Lawrence King. That all seems to check out. He talks about the guy that uh, hired the guy, uh, Emilio. Emilio. To, Emilio to take him to Colorado. They take... They take Paul to Colorado, and guess what he shows you? This underground place where there's people, kids' names or initials carved in the walls. And now he starts telling you about this branding Mm -hmm. that sounds even stranger. What is he talking about? He said there's this ring, and all these kids come forward. Again, another factual thing that he he says something, and then there's proof to back it up. Mm Mm-hmm. Do I believe Paul Benassi's claims? Mm-hmm. I believe some of them. And like you said, there's he 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 states something and then boom, there's there's something that backs it up. Yeah. And this happens time and time again. There where we don't have proof to back something up is when he discusses the abduction of Johnny Gosh. Um there is a situation where 
you know, the, the, the police uh, from Des Moines, they go to Omaha, Nebraska, and they interview um, Paul Benassi's family, his siblings, and, and they ask him to, they want to figure out where his whereabouts were at the time of Johnny's disappearance. Now, all of his family members say that he was, he was there in Nebraska. Well, yeah, mainly the, his siblings. Yeah. And there's a couple things we should point out here. Um, it's not a terrible stretch to believe that somebody could have been in Nebraska and Iowa in the the same same day. day, Yeah. That is certainly possible. Um, the other thing is the police did interview his siblings about 10 years after the fact, Um, so that's pretty hard to remember where somebody was on a specific day, uh, 10 years earlier. Um, so that, you know, you can give Paul the benefit of the mm -hmm. doubt there, but where, where I have the problem with the Johnny Gosh portion of his story is there's nothing that leads anywhere. There's no Emilio. There's no person to go to and there's no car. There's, there's nothing he can point to other than the fact that other than him saying I was in the back of this vehicle and my job was to chloroform the kid. And then we put the kid into a van and there's, there's several issues I have with that one. It's been reported by multiple eyewitnesses. This is a two door car. This isn't a four door car that presents some obstacle Mm -hmm. with, with his story. Uh, the other thing is he, you can't lead us to Emilio. You can't tell us who Emilio is. Is Emilio a code name? Is it is the the, it the guy's real name? I mean, somebody said he could have been Latin. Uh, said he had slurred speech. Maybe he didn't have slurred speech. It was just an accent. Or yeah, but just, don't, don't you think the lawyer, um, John Rossi, would would know that it was some kind of accent? You know, you'd mm, think he would know. Possibly, I uh, yeah. yeah. I could agree with that. But again, what I'm getting at here, Captain, is there's no, he can't lead us to the vehicle. He can't lead us to Amelia. Yeah, but he was also a kid at the time. Yeah, he would have been uh, 15, 16 years old. Yeah. Yeah, but that's a freaking kid. And t- 10 years later, I mean, you know, the difference between the captain when he was 15 and 25 was a huge difference. But what I'm, what I'm getting at here, and the, the other thing, the other problem I have with some of the Paul Benassi story is that his lawyer, says that he spoke, and this is when the lawyer finds out about Paul's multiple personalities. Right. He says, you know, uh, I spoke to this uh, psychiatrist that was leaving, um, psychologist, psychiatrist, whichever one it is. Right. Um, we'll just say both, so I'm covered either way. Too many drinks. <laughs> but uh, he speaks to to this gentleman who's leaving uh, the, the jail where Paul Benassi is telling these stories. Mm-hmm. And he says to him, you know, is he telling you all these wild stories? And, and the, the man says, yes. Um, however, you know, these aren't lies. He's, he's incapable of lying. He's a multiple personality. And he, rather than lying, he's going to switch to a personality that was there that experienced that situation. And right. he's going to tell you the story. Well, regardless of how many personalities are housed in one body at a time, I can tell you from personal experience that every day I'm surrounded by multiple personalities. And it just so happens that it's only one per person, but I guarantee you, if I lined up 10 of those people, there's a liar in one of the, at that group. Yeah, I, I understand that. But, but the, the thing is the reason why he is going into these multiple personalities is to deal with trauma. You know, because of the trauma, because of this ring that he was involved in, and because he was a victim of Lawrence King and and others, that's why he's going into these multiple personalities. 
as a way as a defense mechanism. This is I, this is what I'm guessing. I haven't really read up on it. That's what I'm guessing. So one, I mean, yes, he he's victimized people, but him, himself is uh, Paul himself is a victim. Okay, so we need to treat him as such and 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 treat him with some uh, gentle kindness, right? For the stuff that was done wrong to him. Here's the thing, though. He mentions scars that weren't publicized. Noreen believes him. That's, I, I feel strong about that. Also, there's t- time and time again, what he is saying that sounds so crazy gets backed up. So you're saying, okay, five things he says gets backed up, but this one he's lying about? Okay, then tell me how, do he, how did he know about these scars? Well, I would like to witness the conversation where those scars are discussed. Was was he led? Was was right, the, right. was the discussion led mm-hmm. in a way that he could, could pick up on this? Here's the thing I do want to point out. I firmly believe that Paul Benassi is a victim of some sort. I truly believe that something terrible happened to him when he was a young, when he was young. And... I believe I don't know much about multiple personalities and I'm not going to pretend to what I can see on his face and in his demeanor. He clearly to me shows signs of, of PTSD where, uh-huh. where he has, he has suffered some form of trauma and it's probably in the form of sex, sexual abuse at the hands of adults and probably terrorized. Right. Mm-hmm. And I believe that he, he is a victim and he, he has trauma. Um, I, I don't know. I just wonder if, if coming up with, you asked for a motive on bringing Johnny Gosh into this whole discussion by Paul Benassi. And I just wonder is, was he telling this story about Lawrence C King or Lawrence E King over and over again? And nobody's believing him. Was he telling this story about this child sex ring and nobody wanted to hear it? And then all of a sudden I bring up Johnny Gosh and oh, how the ears have opened. Oh, how the microphones have swarmed to me. Right. And now I have a platform to discuss what's really going on. Right. And I just lured you in. Well, again, I mean, I think that I think if you want to know the truth, then you have to go to the source of when he's talking about these scars and how he knows these scars, how, how he knows this information about the scars. You know, because, I, because the thing too is that, you know, when I first heard this, I thought, well, what if, I mean, look, if this, kid is involved and you know he's just kind of used goods i mean that's what he says like they just that's his own words you're right. exactly they, right they they're not really interested in me because i've already been taken advantage of and that wasn't the thrill there's bigger money and taking advantage of these these kids for, uh you know for the first time it, it's fucking disgusting okay first of all but um your, what if your french is not very good so i pardon it it's, oh, fuck it. I mean, when you're talking about this, this stuff is disgusting, you know, and this and these to me are the closest thing that we have uh, on this earth to demons. Mm-hmm. This is a, to me, um, you know, whether you believe in heaven or hell and God and all that stuff to me, this is a satanic action. I mean, uh, it's this that's a demon action uh, to, to abuse kids like that. And uh you know, I, I'm not, you know, a you know, proponent for the death penalty, but you know, I, I would like to, you know, take a baseball bat to a lot of these guys' heads, you know. Uh, but anyways, maybe he just got confused and they actually abducted a different kid, you know. But again, the scars and Noreen saying, now again, this is a mother 
Is she just hearing stuff that she wants to hear and making connections uh, where there aren't connections? I don't know. The other strange thing, though, to me, Captain, in this whole investigation is that the police, that, and I mean specifically the Des Moines, Iowa police that were involved in the uh, disappearance of, of Johnny Gosh, um, involved in the investigation, I don't even know if we can call it an investigation on their end. It didn't seem like they were putting much effort into it at the time. <laughs> no, um, for, I mean, look, a couple hours in, they're, they're telling the community that this kid's a runaway. But they, no freaking evidence to back that up. Nine or ten years later, whatever. I don't care how long it is. They never at any point, they go and interview Paul Benassi's siblings and determine by their recollection that, that he could not have been in the area of, of Johnny Gosh at the time of the disappearance. However, they never speak to Paul Benassi. Right. I, I can't wrap my head around that thing, man. Why wouldn't you talk to this guy? Even if he's completely wrong, you know, in, in a lot of murder cases and a lot of missing persons cases, there will be some wacko that walks off of the street into the police department and says, hello, my name is Bloogity Bloogity, and I have information about this thing. Or, yeah, or and, I mean, or look at the John Benet Ramsey case. I mean, you got a guy overseas claiming he did it. And when police are doing their job and detectives are working hard to try to solve a case, they might know that a person is batshit crazy, but they will sit down and talk to them anyway. Why? Because you never know what they are going to say. You never know. Something in there could be factual. Something mm -hmm. There could be a clue in there somewhere. Something to follow up on. And again, we just see little to no effort on the part of the police to look into the disappearance of a young boy, of a 12-year-old yeah. dude that's out delivering newspapers that was a part of his community. that had that grew, And he grew up in a nice area. Yeah. We're not talking about, you know, time and time again, we hear about some poor young African-American boy that got handed a raw deal. You know, this, that's not the case here. This is a kid in a nice neighborhood that you expect to get every break. Right. And they didn't even do, they didn't even do it there. Um, mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Well, I think some of that comes into play with this corrupt police chief, you know, and there's a lot more stuff that comes out about him and we can talk about that in the part two, but that becomes like a black eye, a little stain on your department. And so maybe it was just, you know, and, and plus, I mean, you have this uh, uh, mother doing her due diligence, you know, and, and she's put in the time and the effort. Not only that, but now Noreen and, and Big John are, are, are working overtime, working extra jobs. They're paying for a private investigator. Mm -hmm. and, and, we'll, and there was some conflict uh, between the police chief and, and the Gosh family about that. So, I mean, some of it, I think, is just, you know, uh, people need to take a good slice of humble pie, you know, sometimes and remember what your damn job is that serve and protect, you know, that's your job. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you just, you know, rise above, be better. Like I said last week, be, be more human, you know, and that, and I just think that they, they dropped the ball multiple times in this case. I mean, from the get go, you don't tell the community that he's a runaway, assume the worst and then, and then go searching and lift up every rock, do everything you can, because it's a it's a freaking child. Give them a chance. Okay, we have got to cover this in another show because this is just the tip of the iceberg here. 
Well, there's so much more to talk about. There's so many different elements to this case. There's some other weird, strange, wacky things. Um, some of them true. Some of them may not be true. But there's so much more to discuss regarding the disappearance of Johnny Gosh, the child sex ring, uh, the Gosh family, the police department. It goes on and on. And on. I'm just going to say it in part one, and I'll say it again in part two. A lot of the stuff that we're going to bring up, we're bringing it up you know, as far as knowledge and information. Mm-hmm. And then obviously there's some entertainment value of all that, that the, a lot of the stuff that we're bringing up, it not necessarily because we believe in it. You know, we're just, we're going, but we're going to present as many things as we can. Yeah. It should all be reported. And did you do your job this week? Do we have any uh, recommended reading? I did my job, my friend. Do your job. This week we are recommending the Franklin cover up. This is a story about child abuse, Satanism, and murder in Nebraska. And this is by John DeCamp. John DeCamp, who is that? That is the attorney that worked with Paul Benassi and that interviewed him. And he this was his way of getting the story out to the masses. Mm-hmm. So if you want to learn more about the Franklin cover-up, the Franklin Credit Union, and Lawrence King, and all that strange goings on there, it's the Franklin cover-up, Child Abuse, Satanism, and Murder in Nebraska by John DeCamp. You can pick that up by going to our website, truecrimegarage.com. Click on the recommended page, and we have our recommended books there. And thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks so much for telling a friend. The growth of this show has been amazing. Hopefully we can get it to a you know multiple shows a week pretty soon because uh, we love you crazy freaks. And actually, I think we're going to do two shows in the garage next week, right? Yeah, so, well, I wasn't going to tell them about the oh, Halloween but we'll, bonus. We'll see you back here next week for Dose Shows in the Garage. And until next time, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Don't litter on your jib. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.